0: Hey, Mike. Hey, Colin. How are you doing? Good. Yeah. We've done 30 of these now,
1: or Th- we will have soon.
0: 30, yeah. Who would have thought? I don't know. It's like a real podcast now. We did 30 over how long?
1: Uh, less than a year. Wow. Yeah. That's actually not That's not bad. Yeah, I know, right? Oh. Okay. Getting, getting our system down. We're so professional.
0: I know. We're getting to the point where we should probably quit. Yeah. We tried for a while. (laughs) That's true. I guess we've already quit quitting. Yeah. We've moved through that already. Yeah. Only quitters to quit.
1: Um, So you were in L.A.
0: Yeah. For... Ziggraph. Yeah. Went out uh, sort of on a last-minute whim. Did uh, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday of the show. Monday, Tuesday, and with the first couple hours of Wednesday, um, it was it was really cool. It was my first time. Um,
1: so, why don't you just pause and tell people what Siggraph is, just if they're not familiar?
0: Siggraph is. The special interest group for computer graphics of the ACM, which is what is the ACM? I'm a member now. I should know this. Um, the Association of Computer Computing Machines. I think it's a it's a really bad name. Um, okay. Slightly higher level. What is SIGGRAPH? SIGGRAPH is a. I, I don't know what they are exactly they're uh, they're not like SMPTE they're not a standards body but they're just sort of a group of people who all like computer graphics so um, everyone from the artists who make movie effects to um, people who do weird video art projects to the people who write Adobe software and Foundry and all these other high-end tools, um, it really covers all of that. So it's, you know, they had this... Their branding this year was art and science, and it really was. I mean, it was... They had rooms set up with just uh, artists showing their projects, and they had screenings of all sorts of uh, student projects and all the effects that came out of all the big effects houses this year. And then they had, you know... Crazy technical papers of, you know, how we're going to be able to fake the next Mars landing. But we definitely didn't fake this one. Well, probably not. Okay. What about the smudge? What? Man, you do not follow any of the conspiracy stuff anymore, do you? No, I don't. Yeah, the Mars thing was totally fake. Oh. Bummer. There's a smudge on the camera that then disappeared. So somebody like walked over and cleaned it. Oh, right.
1: Yeah, well, okay. I believe that. That sounds right. Uh, we can get to that in a bit because we can have a bunch of Mars topics, but back to SIGREF. Um So, and SIGGRAPH has been going on for a long time and has just sort of gotten more and more interesting, I think, um, as, well, we were talking about this a little bit, but as some of the opportunities for innovation um, are no longer bound by processing resources and other things. And as there become more and more sort of um, frameworks and things on the shelves, people can really do interesting research without devoting years and years of their lives to it. Um,
0: yeah, I mean, I mean, most of these things don't take all that long. I mean, they never have any of these papers. What's What was interesting to me is that a lot of the technical papers this year are more practical instead of foundational. So in the past, you know, people would spend a couple years and come and be like, this is awesome. We came up with something called Graph Cuts, and you can use it to segment an image. And you go, okay, cool. I can, you know, say... I can click on one part of the image and say, this is in, and click on another part of the image and say, this is out. And then it will sort of find the boundary between the two. And you're like, that's going to be neat. I can... Someone can make a masker, you yeah. know. And then... But now it's like all of these, there's this toolkit of these foundational things, which are becoming, people are starting to do really interesting higher order functions with them. So, you know, people were taking, um, and we'll go through some of the papers that really stuck out. Um, but, you know, people were combining, you know, this automatic segmentation with face tracking and, uh, optical flow to figure out the motion in the image, and then having humans transcribe the footage and you know doing something interesting with all of that big data um, and there were a few of those, and so you know it's getting interesting to see you know we're finally getting to the point where we can do these sort of higher order functions with this stuff um,
1: and that's sort of you know we've mentioned a few times that um, a lot of Interesting research sort of ends up um, being bought by a company like Adobe or something to become a feature in Photoshop, and you sort of see that in some of these presentations that they really are sort of features.
0: Yeah, I mean, that was always my impression, that Adobe sort of bought these people, but I don't know, I was surprised how many of the papers were co-authored by Adobe this year. So I think they're, I mean, you know, it was three people from the universities, and then... You know, one guy at Adobe.
1: Yeah, I think that's been the case for a while. Adobe, Microsoft, a few of these companies have really big investments in, you know,
0: shared research and shared... Um... Right. And I think part of that is some of these... and I, You know, I think some of these earlier acquisitions, they didn't actually get the guy to quit his professorship. You know, he's just now working in academia and also... Working for Adobe at the same time, or something—I don't know. Yeah. So,
1: tell me a little bit more about the conference itself. Um, how does it compare to something like a WWDC in terms of just the operation and the uh, makeup of the audience?
0: What, did it feel much more academic, or it was a, it was a strange mix? So, the, the two big conferences I do every year are WWDC and NAB. And NAB, I don't actually do the conference; I just do the exhibits. You know, because we're working them. Um, and so I don't really know what things are like on the, you know, pay-a-lot-of-money-to-go-to-courses track at NAB. But, I mean, the show was less organized than something like WWDC. Um, and I think partly that's because Apple can sort of, you know, make it a loss leader. Um and the makeup i don't know the makeup was it seemed about half and half people doing um you know i was kind of disappointed to see well i was let me back up i was actually sort of interested to see that the uh the male female ratio was much higher than in some of these other conferences which i thought was nice um you know, it's always good to see that you're not in an industry that's entirely male. Right. Um, but it definitely skewed, you know, but once you got into a technical paper, it was a little more disappointing because then it was just a sea of dudes with long hair. Um, and so there's still a lot more work to do, but I don't know. I, I, I couldn't tell you exactly how everything... Separated out, but it seemed. Um, I mean, the tracks that I was in was definitely a lot more technical than even a WWDC, um, because it wasn't about teaching you how to do something. It was about showing something they had done. Sure. Um, and it was certainly the opposite of, you know, the the standard class at WWDC is, you know, the preamble is, this stuff is really hard, you probably can't do it, but we can do it for you, and here's how, use our API. And this was all like, well, here's what we had to do, and here's why nothing off the shelf worked, and, uh, you know, check on our source code.
1: So do people wear badges that identify where they're from,
0: or do you have a sense of, like, what the mix from... But yeah, I mean they had you know they had the standard lanyard thing, and there was a lot of you know there was a lot of Adobe, a lot of Microsoft, a lot of um, a lot of you know post houses, hmm. and even a lot of smaller you know what I assume are like second and third tier smaller editing effects um, like commercial houses. Sure. Um, so you know a lot of a lot of drivers you know, equipment drivers, you know, I think. I, 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 some of, you know, I, I have to assume that once you get out of the top tier, you don't have a lot of in-house development. And so, you know, just judging from the name, some of the company names, I'm guessing they were, you know, more likely to be flame artists or nuke, you know, operators than someone actually... You know, designing a pipeline or something, sure, sure. writing their own distributed renderers. Um, so it was, yeah. I mean, it was all over the all over the place. It was it was nice that they sort of packed those two things together. And then there's also an expo component, isn't there? Yeah, there was an expo. Um, it was smaller than um, some of these other shows. It was more on a Macworld size.
1: So. But that's the chance for companies to sort of show off their actual new products and do some sales and marketing.
0: Yeah, and they had, I mean, they had tied to the expo, they had classes as well. So you could go to see AMD give a talk about their new GPU or go see um, NVIDIA talk about CUDA5 or things like that. And then the thing that I didn't get a chance to do much of is there there was a lot of breakout sessions. Um, like outside of the conference, birds of feather sort of events. So um, those tended to happen when I was busy doing something else um, or after I left. Um, So, yeah, I mean, it really was all over the place. It was 3D printing, art, OpenCL, OpenGL, RenderMan, um, all the various tools, um, yeah, lots of stuff.
1: Cool. I mean, you you, uh, you, you know, I, It it strikes me that one of the things I generally find valuable about this type of conference when it's a good conference is that it's introducing you not to things that sort of solve an immediate problem you've got, but sort of making you aware of things that in six months or a year or two years or whatever you're going to remember that you saw. Oh, I think I saw a thing at Sigref about that, and then you can jump on Google or whatever and, and track it down. But just having that little seed that... you know, makes you think that there's a solution out there. Sometimes short circuits, a whole sort of frustrating process of not finding what you're looking for or whatever. And so just having a sense of sort of what's possible on that frontier, even if you're not operating on that frontier today, um, I think can be really valuable.
0: Yeah. And I mean, I think it's, it's always been hard with, um, academic content, it seems like that it just isn't as Googleable for some reason. Yeah, yeah. Um, You know, a lot of it sits behind paywalls, and sometimes you can find the abstracts, but you never really... I don't know. So this was interesting.
1: I mean, in some ways, it used to be the same for me when I was more on the sort of um, broadcast side going to NAB, because especially 10 years ago, um, you know, And this is going to seem weird to people, but a lot of companies didn't really market their products because everything happened through intermediary sales and integrators. Um, And so you'd go to NAB to sort of find out what was out there so that when you needed a time-based corrector or something, you sort of knew which companies to turn to because Google wasn't going to be very helpful uh, because none of these companies thought about selling to end users. So it's
0: sort of the same deal. Yeah. So you want to talk about the crazy stuff? Yeah,
1: yeah. Tell me about some of the cool things you saw.
0: Okay, so um let's see. What did we... So, I mean, I guess the the first thing of the week was a keynote by Jane McGonigal of TED fame. And uh, if you want to know what it was like, just watch the TED talk. It was pretty much a recycling of that. Um, but it was good, you know. She likes games. She likes hyperbole. Um, so she saved everyone's life or something, um, and gave us all years of extra life and did some sort of work record. I don't really know. Um, it was good. It was inspirational, as you can tell (laughs) by how much I remember, um, and then, so the papers, uh, there were some, there were some crazy things this year. So the ones that really stick out in my mind um, quickly. So there was a paper on something they're calling image melding, which is the new, it's the next generation content aware fill. So Adobe's content aware fill, where they can you can circle a section in your frame and go fill this in and it goes and copies texture patches basically from the rest of the image in yeah um and it does okay with incredibly random areas it doesn't do well with structured data so it doesn't do well with grids it doesn't do well with especially doesn't do well with non- obvious grids. So say you brick wall, you might be able to get away with if you're really lucky. Um, a cobblestone wall or something where, you know, the human eye can easily detect the edges of the bri of the stones, but they're not placed in a common way, like in an ordered way mm-hmm. just falls apart. I mean, you end up with just sort of partial stones all over the place. Um, or something like, um, even something as structured as seemingly unstructured as a gradient just blows up most of the time. So sky replacements tend to almost work in content aware fill where it starts from both edges and splats in a gradient and eventually the two hit in the middle and you've got this tear. Right. Um, and that just has to do with sort of the way the the algorithm works. It only, all it does is copies patches into the region. And so there's no way for it to sort of deal with those situations. This new image melding thing does a couple of new things. One, it looks for patches. Um, when it goes to find patches somewhere else in the image, it does it it allows itself to find rotated patches and scaled patches. So um, say your content aware filling like a brick wall that's going off into the horizon, it can actually find close-up bricks that it can scale down to place farther out on the horizon. Um, one of the samples they were showing was a like a... Um, you cut off half of an orange and it can find, it can take the other side of the orange, like other sections of it and rotate them to fit on the other side. Um, (laughs) you can take a face and cut off one side of the person's mouth and it will pull teeth and lips and everything from the other side of the mouth. Like it's really smart. Wow. Um, and then the other big thing it does is it actually, instead of just splatting the patches in, it takes it looks for a ton of patches and then it averages all of them after it's aligned them all. And then it has a sort of gradient minimization step. From what I understand, I haven't actually I haven't posted the paper yet that I could find. Um, and so I'm still waiting to see the actual process for this last step. But it looks like they do some sort of You know, they start with a very, you know, the way that a lot of these things work is they start by scaling down your image until until it's like 200 by 200, doing all of these calculations and then walking up what's called Gaussian space. So you walk up, you basically, you know, you can think of it two ways. You either scale it down to 200 by 200 or you just blur it so that you only really have 200, you know, you have the effective resolution of that. And then you slowly back off that scaling or blurring until you're back to full resolution. And each, with each one of those steps, you wait for the you preferentially wait for the solution on the last step. And so this way you can splat in large level details and then fix them as you go out. Cool. Um, but this actually in that process, it does a sort of gradient thing so that it can, um, it doesn't end up with just patches. It can meld them together. So one of the things they were showing was taking like a two trees, one that has a hole in it with a squirrel. You draw a lasso around the tree and squirrel copy it, and then do like a clone operation into the other tree. And it will actually keep the squirrel and around the edges, it will meld the bark detail so that it's seamless. Mm -hmm. So it basically, you know, it joins. So you can use it almost as like a texture iterative function. Sure. Um, It did some really neat stuff. Yeah, I, I, there's a demo video we can
1: link to as well um, uh, that shows some of this stuff happening, and it's pretty remarkable. It's sort of like the thing you see, and you immediately are eager for Photoshop CS7, so you can start using this. Yeah, it's going to be neat. Um,
0: I, I, it's one. You know, the, a lot of these things are happen first in photo. Just because they're not i mean I'm not sure that this is going to be temporally coherent, right right, and so which is a shame, which means you can't really get away with just running it every single frame because the solutions move around enough right that it's jarring, but it's really neat um, so that was a cool paper um. There was a paper about, in the same session, about composite matching. So if you cut out a person and stick them into the other, end, onto a background, so you cut out a foreground object, paste it into another image, um, it can automatically match that um, foreground object into the background. So it does, um, you know, contrast changes, CCT. Color temperature changes, um, black point, white point sort of finds the best histogram, sort of changes mm-hmm. in order to fit it in. Um, and you, you know, it's not as good as a human yet. You know, an actual compositor. Yeah. But it was, you know, markedly better than any other automated solution. And you know, in, I think in a lot of cases, if nothing else, a really good starting point for a human.
1: So let me just jump in a maybe a little higher-level higher question about some of this research. Because my take, based on reading some of the papers and things, is that these are not solutions based on what we might call artificial intelligence. These are, you know, it's not sort of building a neural network that's making decisions. It's based on sort of uh, figuring out sort of mathematical processes to go through an image analysis that Results in a given output is—is is that a fair distinction to make? Like, is there—is there, yeah, is there I mean, a line
0: to draw that's, here? That's all. That's kind of been the the trend in all intel, computer intelligence. You know, I mean, yeah. look at the self-driving car. They gave up on neural networks a long time ago. I mean, in, back in the when AI became a buzzword back in the seventies and early eighties, you know, the idea was really that we were going to rebuild the structure of the human brain in code and then it would just you know you'd have that spark of consciousness that just came one day or at least you know spark of intuition i guess is a better way to think about it and it just you know people have had good success with some of that stuff but it's just i think what what people don't like about it is when you're done you don't know why it works one because all you've done is trained it And so the, the internal process is arbitrary and unknowable in the same way that it is in our heads. And because of that, when, when bugs creep in, you know, just weird mischaracterizations and such, there's no direct way to fix them. All you can do is train the system more. right? and you know, computer, you know, software architecture is bad enough when, when we can pretend that the whole system is knowable. Um, I don't know. I think, I think there's just been sort of a backlash against that, and the idea now is, um, you know, most of these tools now instead do gross approximation and iteration. You know, that seems like the way to do things now is you you make a guess, you check if it's better or not, you try again, and then and then all the you know, all the programmer has to do then is come up with a few simple step type rules that you know, that, that they intuit that will get you closer to a solution, and then you just throw you throw cycles at it.
1: Right. Well, I think it's just interesting because the language we use, you know, like when you were talking about the, you know, cutting off half an orange and knowing to sort of find the other half and rotate it or whatever, we sort of, you know, impart intelligence onto that process because that's the way as humans we think about it, you know, that we think that the software understands, well, that's an orange and it's sort of, uh, um, uh, what, what's, yeah. what's the word I'm looking for when some, some mirror half and half something is the same? Symmetrical. Symmetrical. Thank you. I've I've got I've been sick this week. I'm a little fuzzy still. Um, so, but you, you know, we we think about we we sort of impart our own um, processes onto these algorithms, and that's not really the way they're working behind the scenes. But we sort of want to see intelligence in them and yeah. you know, think that they're understanding the images in the same way that we are, and that's just not the case yeah no these' these all
0: with almost no exceptions these sort of things see many of them don't even see the whole image I mean this composite thing does because it's dealing with just the histogram level stuff but um, you know which is an easy way to boil down the whole image but like the image melding and uh, there's another one in my list about deblurring, which is the same patch sort of thing, all it does is it looks through the image for random, it just randomly chooses spots in the image and checks to see if you cut that piece out and put it over the piece you're looking at, does it look the same? You know, that's how Content-Aware Fill works, is it looks at the edge it has to start from, and it just starts grabbing stuff randomly from the image and sticking it there and saying, okay, do the edges line up? And, you know, the way that it tells that the edges line up is it you know, it basically does, like, an edge detection. Right. And if there's, you know, and if you end up with more white lines, you know, and then it just counts the number of lines that end up white, you know, pixels that end up white with an edge detection filter. And then it goes, oh, there's a lot of them. And it it just tries this, you know, the programmer sets some sort of upper limit, and it just splats stuff into that spot and checks, and then it picks the one that's best, you know, for whatever metric the programmer programmed. Yeah. So, I mean, there, when you get, but what I find really interesting about this sort of stuff is, um, what's real. you know, what really attracted me to, you know, image processing type programming sets is that the operations, it's sort of amazing the, how simple, the operations are that you do in these really high-end features and sort of how much you know of this higher level, you know, what we attribute to cognitive ability comes out of these incredibly simple things just done repeatedly. You know, when you get down to like any of these things like graph cuts or content or fill or the stereoscopic 3D imaging any of that stuff it's it's not that much code and it's not that complex you know when you when once you actually wrap your head around what it's doing it's it's sort of embarrassing how simple it is yeah. and and how how discreet it is that's what always amazes me you know like to build a 3D map of an image the computer you know, with most of the algorithms out there never looks at more than a few pixels at a time. Like all it's doing is saying, Oh, this spot here. Oh, and the other image, it's over here. Okay. And it just does it again and just does it over and over and over and over and over and builds up this new image. And that's true of nearly all of these. Yeah. Well, and I think it's
1: just, again, I think that gets back to this idea of when you look through the list and we'll link to, um, Some some more sort of listy type things of some of the papers listed uh, shown at SIGGRAPH. You know, you see that people are solving sort of small problems in in really impressive ways. But you know, they again, it didn't take that one person doing decades of research to solve this. I guess like one I'm thinking of right now was a really cool project where they were extracting um, reflections out of. Images and then sort of generating new reflections within new rendered images based on the extracted reflections from other sets of images. Um, But the the sort of data they were able to, I'm I'm not going to say this well, but they were sort of making these initial assumptions that seemed to me completely, like, magical, like... um, the demo was sort of looking at a picture frame from the side and so you had the glass in front of the picture and so you had reflections in the glass and then behind the reflections you had the image and they said sort of like well first we'll just extract all of the reflections and now here's just the extracted reflections and you had this separate layer that was just the reflections from the glass and it was like, I, I, my initial reaction was, how is that even possible? And for this this paper, it was like, well, that's just sort of this library that we pulled off the shelf. That's not relevant to the actual work we're trying to do. But it's just sort of something we can pull off of, uh, you know, a source repository somewhere.
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, a lot of these papers were implemented in uh, OpenCV, which is Intel's big image analysis framework. Um, yeah, I mean, there's, it's, you know, it's it's like any other, I mean, that's, I mean, we could sing this song of patents right now. That's what's so great about academia, is that you can build your work on other people's work, you know? I mean, if you were to trace back any one of these papers and all of the foundational research it's based on then yeah we're talking you know so sure know, sure yeah hundreds of people working for decades
1: yeah i think it's also you know again just a moore's law thing that, that we're at this point now with computer graphics especially with still image stuff where you can get away with almost anything through brute force or through sort of throwing a lot of cycles at problems. Um, Whereas at SIGGRAPH 20 years ago, I imagine that there were a lot more conversations about sort of getting algorithms performant and um, being able to just sort of do stuff with the computing resources of the time. And especially for still image processing, I've got to imagine that um, that is less of an issue these days.
0: Although, I mean, you know, so image melting is the new content or fill, right? It's doing a ton more work. It is eight times slower. You know, I mean, I think people are still worried about this sort of thing. I mean, there were, you know, there was a paper on, um, a new way to do motion estimation. I mean, or a new way to sort of tune motion estimation, Mm -hmm. um, which is, you know, one of the more foundational papers and it's, you know, order, it's an order of magnitude faster than the old way
1: and and more
0: accurate. And, you know, it's, it's. I don't know. I mean, part of it, I think, is we're getting... People are starting to realize that they overthought some of these problems. Hmm. Um, you know, what we're finding now, especially in... Or maybe what it is is that people solve these problems in the image domain and just sort of ported them over to the video domain. Right. And you know, what we're now finding you know in the same way that like it's crazy how little actual smarts you need in order to do image processing as long as you just do it on all the pixels and then sort of blur it <laughs> which is how i mean most of this stuff works um what we're finding now in video is you just do it even worse and then blur it even more because you have more data you know you blur it across time sure and then it gets rid of most of the problems yeah
1: I mean, it's, it's, yeah, it's very cool stuff. It, it, I think it was the
0: last version of
1: After Effects that a lot of this stuff that had... Uh, yeah, the lasso,
0: magnetic lasso.
1: Yeah, there were a hand, yeah a handful of really cool things in the, the recent After Effects updates that sort of brought features out of Photoshop where you thought, well, they're great sort of frame by frame, but how could they possibly work temporarily? And, and, and they started demonstrating some of that in After Effects. And I think that's a really exciting transition. It'll be cool to see, you know, as Adobe continues to sort out what Creative Suite looks like going forwards in terms of uh, Photoshop having video tools and everything else. Yeah. But it'll be really interesting to see how they continue that um, movement of technology from this still domain into video yeah and
0: i mean i think a lot more of the emphasis on the research side is making
1: things temporarily coherent now yeah and obviously Adobe's not the only name in the, uh, name in the game um but they've been sort of at for better or for worse they've been happy to just chuck features into their apps even if it doesn't tell necessarily a coherent story at the time um and so it's sometimes the first place we see these things. Yeah, that's true.
0: Okay, can I, I think we got through most of the ones I wanted to talk about, but I just got I got two more things. Yeah. One was, I found, one thing I found really interesting was a lot of these papers are now using um, Mechanical Turk in the research process. So the composite matching thing I was talking about, the way that they actually came up with... So that was actually... I believe that used an artificial intelligence, like an actual trained system. Okay. Um, and the way they did it... I mean, so there's so many cool research tools out there now. So what they did was they took... An, a, there's a library of images called Label Me that have been built up by academia, And what they did was they literally outsourced to all sorts of like graduate student, I don't know, undergraduate assistants, they said, here are images um, and what you're going to do is sit down, you know, so it's just like a giant folder full of images. You're going to sit down and you're going to take every foreground object and, you know, they had some sort of tool where you lassoed it or you painted over it like a matte color or something and then label it with a label. You know, so it's like stop sign. So now you've got this data set where, you know, if you're building a self-driving car, you go, okay, I need to make something that finds stop signs. And so you can pull a library of images with stop signs in them and run your vision system against it and see if it finds all the same stop signs that, you know, humans found. Um, But for this composite matching, what they did, which I thought was really smart, is they took... um, they just took an image set of things that had a foreground object in front of a background where the foreground object was entirely in the frame. And they just pretended like they were composites. And so they did, the, they did all of their research on this. So they trained their composite matching system to make images look like images oh, that sure. were composited. So they said, this is the foreground that we've composited, in quotes, over the background, Uh, What are the attributes of the front thing and the back thing? And how do they correlate? And so they did this on a giant system. And then they went the next step and started mucking with all of those things. So instead of, so a goat on a hill, they took the goat and instead of taking it out and compositing it on something else, they changed the way that it looked. So they upped the saturation of just the goat or they lowered it in just the background or they did, you know, these things to sort of change the way the foreground and background data that they were measuring correlated and then sent all that to Mechanical Turk and said, you know, which of these hundred images looks best or, you know, is this image true or false? This image is fake. And then they took all that data and figured out what the important metrics were, you know, and how they had to match or not match Mm -hmm. and then they use that to train their system to choose you know what things were important for each image so what they found was actually that you don't you don't always match the highlights of an image in order to get it to fit Um, it's based on color temp and a couple other things and so what they did was they sort of trained their system to figure out the correlation between these things based on the set of images that they knew looked right because they weren't fake, sure. and the set of images that they faked, but did or didn't pass scrutiny from Mechanical Turk. Sure. Hold on, I'm going to have to answer this call. It's my parents. So yeah, I mean it. It was interesting. A lot of you know there were a couple papers like that where they used. You like sort of crowdsourcing, yeah, as a as a more of a data collection than anything. Yeah. Um, when
1: well, we've actually got another uh, article on our news uh, list that re- relates to that as well, but yeah, we'll get to that.
0: And then, okay, only one last crazy thing, and it was a project where they did they sort of combined a bunch of these foundational things, so they they took documentary-style interview footage where, you know, talking head in front of the camera, three-quarter shot, or, you know, head and shoulders, somewhere in that range. And they, uh, they had someone transcribe it. They used Virage to match the transcript to the actual image, so they had timecode-accurate transcripts. And then they did face tracking to figure out where the faces were in the shots, They did uh, sort of motion estimation, optical flow on the bottom third of the image to figure out if there were hands or something moving around. And then they took all that data, and they were able to show you a transcript. You could choose sections of the transcript, um, and then... And it would sort of flag where there were good cut points, which meant hands weren't in the shot and mouth was closed, things like that. Um, And then you could cut these sections together, Frankenbite style, you know, where you just build someone saying something, Uh however you want. And then it would go through and it would fix the image. So you didn't have to do it off screen. You didn't have to do a jump cut or anything. What it would do is you would cut the two shots and then look at those two frames that had to, that weren't matching up and go through your entire corpus of interview footage and find a short clip where the person moved from that same position at the head of the jump cut to the <laughs> position at the tail of the jump cut and then use optical flow retiming to make that as short as possible but still look believable, and then sort of morph, you know, clean up the edges through a little bit of morphine or something, you know, basically just by blowing over your motion vectors. Um, and so, yeah, so you could cut from one bite to another bite on screen relatively seamlessly. It was, it
1: was scary. Yeah, so this lets you basically take an interview with someone and make them say something entirely different just by... Which
0: is which is what we've been doing for years. I mean... Right. You, yeah. But usually you have to cut away to your B-roll or you, you know... Right. Now you can do it on screen, which, you know, is a little scary because it imparts a little more... Um,
1: it just becomes harder for the interviewee to say, I never said that. And it's like, well, we got video that has you saying it on camera. Right. Yeah. Uh.
0: There's a you know, there's a different expectation, maybe not outside. I mean, there probably isn't outside of people who have edited. But, you know, you would hope that in the past, as people become more Used to these tools, that the literacy would go up to the point where people would sort of assume that anytime you heard someone say something, then unless you saw their mouth moving, it was fake. But you know, now you can't even use that metric. It's right. Now you just have to assume everything is always everyone, fake. which is you know where we are with images. Right. So yeah, I mean, it's just gonna it's it's interesting how these things. I don't know. Keep. Yeah, making the world a little bit more skeptical and cynical. (laughs) Yeah, it's...
1: I mean... Yeah, again, the march of technology, all you can do is sort of... Sigh. Yeah, and and move on. You can't fight against it, but wow. It's definitely uh, scary stuff in some regards, but also very cool stuff. Yeah. So... Um, so SIGGRAPH, you think you'll go again? I mean, would, you know, given, you know, flexible schedules and everything else, if you have the opportunity, would you go again?
0: Yeah, it was fun. I mean, it was definitely, you know, I left with a couple new product ideas and a lot of things I wish I had time to, you know, sit down with an empty Xcode project and re-implement myself just to see, to, to better understand. Yeah. Um...
1: I mean, experiencing it vicariously through you, I was pretty jealous. I'd love to have the opportunity someday, and um, it, it,
0: yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's def- I mean, it's a really cool conference. It's a bit, it's right on the edge of applicability for us, um, but there were a few things, and hopefully, we'll get more into this sort of stuff in the coming years. Yeah, because. I don't know. Filters, man. Filters are where everything's at. Filters? Yeah, people who write whole apps are such chumps. Oh, I got Can you, you. imagine, like, how yeah. much time do we spend mucking around with buttons and saving preferences <laughs> and... Oh, supporting, like, all these different systems and different... You know, like, we spend so much time making sure that our movies open in six different editing suites if we just made a plug-in for one of those editing suites bleh. this is you, true you charge the same amount of money that we're charging for a whole app and all you don't even have to make a ui you just you just do the cool like bit banging stuff
1: of course if we wanted to go uh all, all the way down this path and you sort of alluded this on chat the other day is um a lot of these guys are developing products Just in house for one particular shop. And so you're you're not even having to build a plugin that has to work on everyone's system. You're building a plugin that only has to work on, you know, seven systems for one workflow.
0: Right. Um, That certainly lets you cut some corners. Although some of those, I mean, I was dumbfounded the complexity of some of these. I mean, you sort of assume that internal duct tape is going to end up, you know, looking horrible and being sort of, you know, usually usability is the first thing that goes because people don't choose you. Mm-hmm. Um, but some of those tools were amazing. Sure. And mostly, you know, it's because the the size of some of these things, they just don't have time to support everyone. And I mean, what was really interesting is most of these companies don't even have time to implement features for everyone. And so the tools are like incredibly extensible. Sure.
1: Well, and certainly, I mean, we've seen over the years lots of commercial products that have come out of in-house tools, um, sometimes for better, sometimes for worse. But, um, and even some companies that have been, cre- you know, commercial software companies that have been created out of in-house development groups. Yeah. Or at least retain strong connections with in-house development groups. So, um just a couple news things to cover quick, because you were talking uh, earlier about uh, using Mechanical Turk to sort of uh, do crowdsourced analysis of images. Um, There was a story this week from Errol Morris or from the New York Times blog. Um, Errol Morris had run a column in the Times um, asking people to go take a survey about, well, it was a a survey about uh, whether they were pessimistic or optimistic, but, he, in this follow-up blog post, has revealed that the reality of the survey was uh, testing whether people considered certain fonts more or less trustworthy. Um, because the way the survey worked was that different people viewing the survey got questions per shown fonts. in different fonts. And the result, and that you should definitely read the post because it breaks things down in very interesting detail. Uh, The result was that Baskerville is the most trustworthy font, and not surprisingly, Comic Sans is the least trustworthy font of the ones tested.
0: It was interesting, yeah. I found that I I mean, it's, you know, it's intuitive at some level, but the fact that they got statistically, statistically significant differences, even like in the set of what you know you would consider more buttoned-up fonts. Yeah, it was interesting. Yeah, definitely
1: worth worth a read. It's a lengthy blog post, but it's pretty fascinating. Um, a couple posts I'll just throw in our links. Um, it, it was really fun earlier this week to sort of participate in the internet's uh universe as the mars curiosity rover was descending onto mars and and successfully landing um because there was a big audience staying up late on sunday night and participating in a sort of running twitter conversation watching nasa live streams and everything um and so obviously the internet's been pretty fascinated by the whole process and by all the cool science that uh, curiosity is going to do um so i'll link to a document that rounds up how the sort of software stack running the mars science laboratory works and also the coding standards behind the creation of that software stack which is a fun read if you're a developer um oh i didn't even see this in our list yeah is is it is it about as strict as ours it's, it's pretty serious, um, because obviously bugs are an issue, um, when you can't go out and press the reboot button. Um, so a lot of it is writing code that can be, you know, statically analyzed reliably and, um, do not use go to, <laughs> um, But it's a cool read. Um, And also, I'll throw a link up. Um, They've put a bunch of the Mars Science Laboratory stuff up on GitHub, so you can actually take a look at some of the code that's developed against these standards.
0: It's funny. None of this is actually
1: surprising, really. No, it's basically just write good code that's maintainable and readable and uh, understandable. Yeah. So, um, continuing our Olympic coverage I'll throw a link to a post that walks through the BBC's um, system for dealing with Olympic video footage um, this was actually a, a cool article because it talks about how you know capturing video content video and media content is one thing, but the really important thing about all this Olympic content is managing the metadata associated with it you know in terms of uh, athletes and times and scores and all of that information and so it talks through how BBC is tracking all of that in conjunction with media data and keeping that information tightly coupled throughout their whole production process so that they can uh, do. Various interest, interesting things with the content, uh, both now and in the future. So sure. again, a lot of data management going on, and, and BBC seems to have a pretty cool system in place. Um, yeah,
0: let's see. Um, what's this uh, asset management linking? Uh,
1: Southpaw. It's not one I'd known about, but this is a uh, apparently a digital asset management system uh southpaw that has Mm -hmm. gone open source sorry i just saw that it's as attractive as any asset management system um with the
0: added uh open source ugly stick although i haven't had much time to hit it with it yet right i assume it's gonna look much better soon Um, and it looks like the company's
1: basically doing a pivot to a support driven model where they're going to, you know, you can download it for free, but then when you find out how hard it is to get it running, you do a contract with them to come in and actually set it up for you. Can I, okay. Can I just say that this is
0: one of the largest problems with this? I mean, this model is so horrible. Yeah. Okay. So first of all, you go open source. You know, I mean, open source has this problem where everything, everyone's solving their own problems, not the community's problems. So traditional software design, you you know, like you think, I mean, say what you want. One of the pros of it is Apple. And what they do is they make the software work really well for 80%. And the 20% of people on the fringes of the bell curve, like on the tails, they just drop. They don't even try because trying is the quickest way to fail. They just give up. You're not allowed to even use the software. If you try, we'll punch you in the nuts. Like, go away. Um, And what that does is it lets you focus on, you know, because what you find is 80% of the people are actually in a very small swath of the bell curve. And so you have to do like a tenth of the work to support them, and then you spend all your time on polish. Whereas the open source model is everybody goes in and does what they want, which means all of the work is done on the 20%. Right. And nothing is done. No projects are undertaken that help everyone, which is basically polish. And then on top of that, you add a financial incentive, you know, with things like MySQL or this or you know any of these ones where you have someone whose sole job it is to make it easier to run like the the only person with any financial incentive which is usually what gets these boring things done like polish they 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 have no reason to make it easier to use right or easier you know or even worse easier to install which is you know most of these Process, you know, most of these packages, like, you give up before you even try it because they're so asinine on the, you know, the installation step. Yeah. And, uh, okay. Yeah. So this, this will
1: go well. I'm sure. Yeah, this one's written in Python. Um You know, we'll probably not go anywhere like most open, you know, most projects that are released into the open source after a closed source development time. Most of the time they don't get picked up by any open source developers uh, and just sort of fizzle or they, you know, get forked into a variety of other projects,
0: you know. Right. I mean, it works in the way that something like Shake worked where. Sure. If you have people who've already bought into this to the point where they're screwed, yeah then and they're large enough to have internal development, they will just basically ditch you and turn the product into whatever they need, right, and maybe commit upstream later I would love to see a diff of shake now, like all the various <laughs> shake branches yeah that exist in the wild, like. How much you want to bet most of them, the first diff is the name of the application.
1: (laughs) Uh, I wonder how many of them are named Rattle.
0: Uh,
1: I would bet a lot. Um, But, you know, asset management is just such a weird space because no one does it well. There's no good asset management, open source or closed source. You know, I want there to be some perfect solution, but it may just be the kind of space where it's just big data management and every
0: solution ends up looking pretty ugly by
1: the time you throw a million assets into it
0: well i mean yeah i mean this is actually something i tried to do for a while that was the product that got me to quit my day job and become a developer was an asset management tool and i mean i think one of the biggest problems is anytime you try to become a second finder yeah you're screwed like you're fighting the finder like until we can get to the point where you can replace the finder or just mark a folder off limits to get to through any other tool on a system you're gonna run into these problems where people don't do the right thing with their data yeah Yeah. mac fuse man yeah build yourself a fake hard drive that would work too bad fuse never became stable
1: um, related to open source stuff, it'll also be interesting to see what happens with TextMate 2, uh, which as we occasionally allude to text editors on this program has gone open source and will probably now die a sad death.
0: Yeah. Although if you're making some sort of GPL open source project and you need a code editor, this might be your best bet. <laughs> Did you know that my... <laughs> Parts of it are written in, I don't remember if it was fourth or Fortran, oh. someone was saying on Twitter. Wow. That might have been a joke, but... I haven't gone looking through the source, but it is out there. Yeah. Uh, yeah is there anything else on here? Do to talk about Philip Bloom? Oh
1: well I'll link to uh, we talked about the PMW 200 last week or two weeks ago it's the new version of the ex1 that records 422 instead of just 420 uh, on S S cards um, by all accounts a nice camera Phil Bloom has one and he did what he called a 10 minute challenge where he set the camera up on sticks in a fixed location and shot for 10 minutes uh, just using Zooms and pans and things to Capture different images of the world around him From that one location and then Cut it together with some music and It was a sort of Pretty You know Emotionful But soulless piece I don't know what you would Even call it it was one of those things that uh, He watched and he said oh that was Very pretty and it did Absolutely nothing to improve my life in any way Um but The camera looks very nice. I think what this video does, though, is remind you that um, pretty much any camera nowadays will look very, very nice in the hands of a talented shooter. And I don't think that this piece showed you really much in the way of why the PMW-200 is better or worse than its competitors. Although, um, you know, it's a nice piece to watch.
0: (sighs) Can we? Okay. So what do you think of it? I think we need to put a moratorium on camera test videos that don't have a story. I mean, okay, so this one, here's my worry. This one almost gets away with this. Okay, so here's the problem. You get a new camera, and you go out, and you shoot a bunch of random footage, and then you cut it over some music you stole, and then you put it up, and it's like a music video, except it's not about the music and even music videos usually have a plot nowadays um, it 's just like a bunch of random stuff you shot, which I'm, you know maybe your parents are proud but and maybe the you know it under the auspices of showing off the camera you can, people do these things they but i don 't I mean like you know the camera manufacturer always does one of them, and how many more of them do we need <laughs> and and so just put, you know, there are people doing amazing camera test stuff. You know, even the camera manufacturers tend to put a plot in the damn thing. You know, they make a little mini movie. Mm-hmm. Like, if this is your way of convincing yourself that you, would, you bought the camera because you're going to do something, you're not. Like, you didn't do anything. You just went out and shot crap and edited it together. You're just using tools. You're not making things. Um, and this, like... So this almost got away with it because it added, like, a meta-narrative, which was like, oh, my God, I've only got ten minutes to shoot something that doesn't have a purpose. I wonder if I can do it. And, like, but but if anyone, if this turns into a thing, I'm quitting the Internet. I'm quitting uh, Camelotest. Well, uh, okay, but you Because you know it's going to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you can also look at it at... You know, we live these
1: leave, we live these busy lives and we don't look at the world around us and look at all the cool stuff that you can see from one point in ten minutes and, you know, you don't have to have all kinds of crazy rigs and things like that to, you know, put together something interesting from just sitting in one place for ten minutes and keeping your eyes open.
0: And I argue it wasn't interesting. <laughs> well, okay. I, I mean, yeah, like... Okay, so step one, don't ever use anything as an excuse not to shoot. So, you know, if you're waiting until you've got a good script to shoot, don't do that either. Um, But I don't know, like, I just hope this doesn't, you know, I hope there's not, like, a hashtag for 10-minute challenge next week. And I'm, (laughs) I'm expecting there will be. Yeah, you're probably right about that. And I mean, yes, everyone should go out and shoot 10 minutes every day, but just like, um, try harder than this, please.
1: <laughs> I'll let the internet know. Okay. So, Chatter. Yeah. What do you got? I got to very quickly, there's a new app for the iPhone called Burner that lets you quickly get a burnable, a disposable phone number what's called a burner, um, that you can use for selling drugs or whatever. Um, you can either make do text messages or make phone calls with. And when you're done, you burn the number and get a new one. Um, this was only interesting to me because when I was traveling in Italy recently, there were a number of occasions where it would have been very convenient to have an Italian phone number either for, um, having someone call me or for receiving a text message from services that could only send text messages to Italian phone numbers. I don't actually know if this app gets non U S phone numbers at this point, but something like this would have been very helpful when it didn't make sense to get a SIM and I don't have an unlocked iPhone anyway, so I couldn't have gotten an Italian SIM, but where it would have been nice to have that option, um, that would have been cool. Yeah. I mean, is that something you could do with Google voice? Um, Google Voice doesn't do overseas numbers right now oh no. and the services I looked at that do it, it was just too problematic to get accounts set up on a short notice and sure I don't know um, and I there there may it may be in part that it's harder to get these sort of disposable phone numbers um, in other countries um, I know that you know for example in parts of the EU they have much stricter records keeping in terms of associating numbers with people. Um, and so it may be harder to do that sort of thing. I'm not sure. Um, the other thing I'll throw out there, PBS did a really nice little five minute piece on uh, glitch art. And we've talked about glitch art in the past a little bit, but, um, it's a really nice roundup of what this sort of art form is all about, both video glitch art and still image glitch, glitch art and audio glitch art. Um, and it's it's really cool and shows you how people are creating it and gives you some cool examples. So definitely take a look, especially if you're not plugged into the glitch art world.
0: Interesting. Um, so mine is just another thing I saw at um, SIGGRAPH. Uh, it was a another paper. I actually didn't get a chance to see it. Um, I, it was on Thursday after I'd left, but I've since pulled their, um, abstract and taken a look at it. And I'd like to see the whole paper. So if you know somewhere that it exists, let me know. Um, it was, so back to some of our earlier talks and blog posts about, um, flesh tones and sort of where they should sit. If that and if that is even a thing. These people used Mechanical Turk to look at memory colors. So the three they looked at were flesh tones, sky, and uh, vegetation. And they had... It was interesting because, one, they found um, that Mechanical Turk is actually a somewhat reliable way to do that. Um, they found that their data was about as consistent as... Um, more controlled viewing tests that have been done in the past. So even though, you know, when you're throwing images up on Mechanical Turk, you can't guarantee, you know, what browser they're being viewed in, if it's color matched, what their monitor set up like, any of that, they found that the, you know, statistical variation was kind of papered over by the numbers, you know, by having a much larger data set Um, and yeah, so they just sort of did some work and found, um, sort of where the, the groupings are for these three things that people find most natural. So I don't know, it's, I'm not, I haven't seen the final results yet, so I'm not, I don't think there's too much to learn from it. But more interesting was the fact that they found that Mechanical Turk is actually a useful tool for something like this yeah i don't know we may want to try you know drop 50 bucks and do a test of our own someday on flesh tones.
1: yeah it's always nice to see mechanical turk being used for productive things because uh, most of what i see it used for is uh cracking captures so that people can spam forums and uh it's it's just nice to remember that it actually does have useful purposes as well yeah so, yeah, we'll wrap up there. Come back next week. I'll be uh, off off of my cold and flu medication and hopefully a little more plugged in. And Yeah.
0: No, go on. stay turned out. Turned off. Tune in.
1: Drop up. One. Drop out. All right. Something. Yeah. I need a nap.
0: You need some more DayQuil.
1: Oh, I love
0: DayQuil. The problem with Dayquil is it makes you too hyper. Yeah. What you need to do is do Dayquil and Nyquil.
1: Yeah. Well, they come in multi
0: packs. So I just take... no, no, no. You got to do the swiggable, the alcoholic stuff. Uh... Mm. What you do is you take two Dayquil and then however much Nyquil it takes to wash down the two Dayquil. <laughs> that's that's good. And meth too
1: right You take meth Just Mm, I'd go with Adderall
0: Yeah I know you would And LSD (laughs) microdoses Okay Uh, Otherwise you know you, You can't do problem solving anymore That's the problem with Adderall You lose the creativity That's what the LSD is for Okay I got it I'll post my recipes on our blog sounds good thanks we'll talk
1: to you next week okay later